I love that song. I had the opportunity to meet the author of that song, Matt Papa, a number of years ago, and I thanked him for it, and I said, but I have one question for you. That first line, what love could remember the sins we have done or the wrongs we have done, I said, would it not be more appropriate to say what love would remember? Because the fact is that he can, he just chooses not to. And he said, let me think about that. Uh, I never heard back from him, though. Anyhow. Well, the story is told of, a, of an old woman who died many years ago now. Uh, the way I've heard the story, she, if it's even true, she lived in a big city, New York or Philadelphia or somewhere like that. But she was disheveled by all appearances. She was very poor. She was called a bag lady. She'd wander the streets pushing a shopping cart with her belongings in it. And many thought she was homeless. But the reality is she actually had a small apartment. Well, the time came that she died. And the authorities went through her apartment to clean it out, and they found that she had over a million dollars stuffed inside of her mattress. This old woman who had lived like a pauper was actually a millionaire. She had great wealth, and yet she wandered the streets like a beggar. There's so much that she could have done to improve her own life and the lives of others. She hoarded the wealth that she possessed, and she squandered the opportunities it would have created for her. That's a tragic story if you think about it. But, you know, it's not nearly as tragic as the daily reality that describes many Christians. When we consider the tremendous benefits that we have in Jesus Christ, if we fail to live in light of those benefits, if we squander the blessings that he has provided for us, what a tragedy. Our text this morning calls us to consider those benefits and to live in light of them. And it's, as I said a moment ago, it's a a turning point in the message of the book of Hebrews. Up to this point, the author has been uh, very carefully laying out this argument, establishing the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that Christ is uh, superior to, uh, to the prophets in the Old Testament, superior to the angels, superior to Moses, superior to Aaron, superior to all of the Levitical priests. His covenant, the new covenant, is superior to the, old, the, new, excuse me, the new covenant that he sealed in his blood is superior to the old covenant sealed in the blood of bulls and of goats. And so we come now in the middle of chapter 10, it, it pivots from what we have in Christ to what we are called to do about it. And it divides nicely into two basic sections. If you think about it, we have since two times. And then we have let us three times. Since we have these things, let us live in this particular way. Since refers to what has already been established. And since these things are true, the benefits that we have in Christ are ours. But then let us points to the application, to the exhortation in light of what we have in Christ. This is what we ought to do. This is how we ought to live. And so we have number one, First major point is our glorious, two glorious provisions that we have that God has made for us. And just briefly, one is this access to God by a new and living way. And secondly, an advocate before the throne of grace. And of course, that's Jesus, our great high priest. And our second major point, there are three exhortations in view of these provisions. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast our confession of our hope and let us engage in meaningful community. That's what my title is. Draw near, hold fast, stir up. Now, I want to remind you for a moment uh, the significance of a curtain that was found in the tabernacle and in the temple under the Old Covenant. You remember the arrangement of the Old Covenant tabernacle and later the Old Covenant temple. The outer court was where the altar, the, the, the large, huge altar for burnt sacrifices was located, and then this bronze uh, uh, basin for cleansing the priests before they could go in further. And all worshipers were welcome to enter into that outer court. But then there was that inner court called the holy place, that inner room. It was under the cover of the tent. 
And only a priest were allowed to enter that portion of the tabernacle. And inside that holy place, they found the golden lampstand and the table of showbread or of the bread of the presence, and then also the altar of incense. And every day, the priests would go into the holy place, and they would carry out their priestly ministry, offering sacrifices on the altar in the outer court and going into the inner holy place to burn that incense before the Lord. It's a fragrant aroma. But inside the holy place was an inner chamber, the, the, the most holy place, or what is often called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, that's where the Ark of the Covenant is located with the mercy seat on top. Or you could call it even the atonement covering. And that's the place where the blood was sprinkled to indicate the presence of God meeting with men. And only the high priest was allowed to go into that most holy place. Only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Only after many, many very carefully laid out provisions had been met, cleansings and going in with blood first to pay for his own sins and then blood for the, to atone for the sins of the people. And there was this large curtain that marked off the most holy place from the larger holy place. This, this veil, this curtain, it was 30 feet wide. It was 30 feet high. It was four inches thick. We're not talking about a tiny little piece of fabric here. We're talking about something very heavy and something very substantial and something that says, keep out. Because the reality is, if anyone entered the most holy place unauthorized in an unworthy manner, if it wasn't the high priest, or even if the high priest went in on the wrong day, or he didn't go in with the right provisions made, God would strike him dead. And so this massive curtain was blocking the way into that most holy place, and no one was allowed to pass through except under very, very specific conditions. So the message of that curtain is, keep your distance, stay away. It is not safe for sinful men to approach a holy God. But as we saw last week, those old covenant provisions, they were only a shadow of the reality that was to come. And that reality we find in the Lord Jesus Christ in the new covenant that was sealed in his blood. And the moment he died on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, something unbelievable, miraculous happened, not simply at Calvary, but in the temple. That huge, massive curtain was torn right down the middle from the top to the bottom. And Scripture emphasizes top to bottom because it was God who tore it, saying the new covenant has replaced the old. The curtain is no longer necessary. The shadow has given way to the reality, and the door, the new and living way, has been opened that we may draw near. No longer is the message, stay away. It's all are welcome. So let's look then at these two glorious provisions God has made for us. First of all, this access to the Lord, to the throne of grace by a new and living way. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now, if you go to the outside of our uh, fellowship hall, you'll see these yellow, this yellow tape, right, going across the, the walkway to the stairwell saying, caution, do not enter, authorized personnel only, as it were. Basically saying, it is not safe for you to be here, so don't. If you cross this tape, you could get hurt. So, kids, please. Don't cross the tape. Don't go down those steps, all right? Uh, and the, ter- temp- the curtain in the tabernacle was saying, danger, do not enter. Authorized personnel only. But the risk was much greater, obviously. But when that curtain was torn in two, now stay away has been changed to all whoever will may enter in. The old way, that old covenant, priestly system, had all these restrictions, and only the high priest could go in only once a year, only on the Day of Atonement, only, only, only. But we saw in previous parts of Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. It was only a shadow of the reality that was to come. But now we have this new and this living way that is open for us through the curtain, 
That is through the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. The curtain being torn was a symbol of the flesh of our Savior being pierced and his blood being spilt in order to truly pay for our sins. That's the reality that the curtain was pointing to. So we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way. Not our own merit, not our own righteousness, not in anything you or I could ever possibly do. Please hear me. We tend to think sometimes that we need to uh, do more, do better in order to be worthy of entering into God's presence. We feel keenly our own sin and, and feel like uh, I'm too vile, I'm too poor, I'm too, uh, too sinful. He won't receive me until I somehow make up for it, somehow make amends, somehow do my penance or whatever it is. And the message is it's all taken care of, it's all paid for in Jesus Christ. And we all who are in Christ, no matter your struggle, we are invited and treated to enter with confidence to that holy place. That word confidence, by the way, the, the, the Greek word behind it is literally all words. You know what it's like to enter into someone's presence and you guard every word because you're afraid if you say the wrong thing, they're going to think badly of you. You know what that feels like, right? But this confidence means you can go in and spill your heart, pour out your heart before the Lord. Just say whatever is there. And you don't have to weigh your words carefully because he has already received you in Christ. And we can go with confidence and not fear or trepidation. We have a boldness. I belong in his presence. I am at home here. I'm not trespassing. It speaks to an absolute freedom of thought and of speaking. It's an open invitation to come before the Lord and pour out your heart. I don't think that we really understand and appreciate how significant that is. Uh, apart from Jesus Christ, the message has been stay away, keep a safe distance. But now in Christ, we're invited, we have confidence to draw near, to pour out our hearts. And we have confidence that it's a throne of grace. God is not saying, you again? What did you do this time? How dare you come to me with what you've just done? If you are in Christ... We come in his righteousness, not our own. And we can come with confidence to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. By the way, what's your greatest time of need where you would receive mercy and grace to help, according to Hebrews 4? It's when you feel the most sinful, when you feel the most guilt and the most shame. That's your greatest time of need. And that's where he says, come with confidence and you will receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. That's the first glorious provision, this confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, this new and living way. But the second provision is that we actually have a living advocate there before our Father, Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Look at verse 21 again. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, he, the Lord Jesus, is our new and living way. He is the sacrifice, but he is also the priest offering that sacrifice. And it's one sacrifice for all time, never to be repeated again. The high priest under the Levitical system would offer priests, uh, would offer uh, sacrifices day after day, and then on the Day of Atonement, year after year, and they never ever accomplished the purpose of taking away a single sin. But when Jesus died and then rose from the grave and then ascended into heaven, it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Look with me. Uh, I believe it's, uh, we can put up Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. I believe she's going to, can you throw it? Yeah, there we go. We read this as a call to worship. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Same thing that you'll see in a moment. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect, every respect, has been tempted to, as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus is the one who's passed through the heavens. Every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would pass through that veil with fear and trembling into the most holy place. 
going through all of the washings and all the sacrifices and all the adornments. But they were all a shadow of the reality that was to come. Jesus is the reality. And he, once and for all, gave his life for us, shed his blood for us. He died. He rose. He ascended. He has now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he remains in the presence of God for all time. Human priests, they'd go in and they'd come out. They'd go in, they'd come out. It was like a revolving door. But Jesus remains, and he remains as our great priest, our advocate, our intercessor, our mediator before the throne of God's grace. In Romans 8, I love these words. It says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Do you realize how amazing that is? Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you if you're his child. Your name's written on his hands. His heart is not one to condemn but one to forgive, to cleanse, to strengthen, to build up, to conform to his image that one day he might present you perfect in the presence of God. So we have access, this confidence to come into the presence of God through the blood of our Savior Jesus, and we have an advocate, a great high priest who is the Lord Jesus himself. And since we have these great benefits, we find three exhortations In view of these glorious provisions, what ought we to do? Since this is so, since we have access, since we have an advocate, Hebrews calls us to incorporate three important activities into our lives, three things that ought to characterize the way we live our Christian lives. One is toward God, one is within our own hearts, and one is toward one another, all right? These are not one-time activities. These are habits of life that you and I are called to cultivate. And they actually highlight three of the great privileges that are ours, If we'll just take advantage of them. The first one is let us draw near to God. Verse 22, let us us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Are you a Christian? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and your Savior? If so, you have access to God. Now use it. Draw near. Cultivate a life of fellowship with God. We do that in a number of contexts. Here in public worship, private worship, at home, with families, with friends. But it's not just the activity of showing up. It's what's going on in your heart as you gather to worship. How many times have you come to church and you've gone through all the motions and you left, but you haven't drawn near to God at all when you could? That ought to be our goal. That ought to be our consuming passion, draw near to him. And we don't have to simply be in church to do that. We can draw near to him anytime, any place. We can live quorum deo, as it were. That means before the face of God. We can live practicing that sense of his favorable presence. And we can set these times aside to draw near in particular ways. And the message is no longer keep a safe distance It's no longer clean up your act so that you can draw near. It is Jesus has made the way. Now draw near in true worship, in true dependence, receiving grace and mercy to help in time of need. But I want you to notice the manner in which we draw near is so very important. The Old Testament priest had to make all these careful provisions He had to adorn himself with these priestly garments that Pastor Mark has been describing in his sermons on the book of Exodus. He had to wash his hands and his feet before he could enter in. In fact, if he failed to do that, he could die. He had to take in blood, first of all, to atone for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. All that had to happen in order for him to draw near. But Jesus has made all of the necessary provisions for us. He shed his own blood. He paid the penalty for our sins once and for all. His blood cleanses our sins. It cleanses our hearts. It cleanses our consciences. 
and our bodies are washed with pure water. Baptism is a symbol of that. But it points back to that cleansing the priest had to go through. The washing, that's a shadow. This is the reality we have in Jesus Christ. And so it says all these provisions are made so we can draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. There's no need for doubt. There's no need for fear. There's no no need to wonder, will he accept me? Our confidence is that Jesus finished the work. Jesus has done all that he's promised. He said, it is finished. The price is fully paid. The curtain was torn in two. The way has been made open for all who are trusting in him. So we're invited, draw near. Not in your own righteousness, not in your own obedience, not in your own worthiness, but trusting solely in the Lord Jesus. That is the assurance of faith, not trusting in yourself, trusting in him. And that true heart speaks of a sincerity, not a double-mindedness. Now let me ask you this question. When could you say, my heart is perfectly Truly and totally sincere. I never ever struggle with any division of allegiances. I never feel torn in two directions. We're not there yet. In fact, there's a great hymn, When This Passing World Is Done, and it talks about the glories of heaven, and one of the glories it looks forward to is that we will love him with an unsinning heart. I look forward to that day. And so he isn't saying, come with a perfect heart. He's saying, come with a true heart, a a genuinely sincere heart. And where your love flags, you grief. Grieve over that lack of love and you long to love him more because you know that's what he deserves. That is the full assurance of faith. That is drawing near with a a true heart. Not that you or I could ever achieve perfect sincerity, but we can look to what Jesus has done for us. And that true heart speaks to an earnest desire to draw near to the Lord and a recognition that our assurance is not based on our performance. It's based entirely on faith in Christ. So let me ask you, Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus, he is your Lord and Savior, are you drawing near to the throne of grace? That is your birthright. That is yours. If you'll only take advantage, it's a privilege that we are given in Christ. Well, the second exhortation, let us draw near, but secondly, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. That word hope is not tinged with any degree of uncertainty at all. It's the hope or the, the confident assurance we have received in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you've been with us for a while, you might recall in Hebrews 6, verse 18, it tells us that God's promise of salvation gives us a strong encouragement to hold fast the hope that's set before us. And then it goes further and says that this hope is an anchor, a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. This confident assurance God has given us of all that he's promised in Jesus Christ anchors our soul so we're not tossed back and forth and drifting all over the place. We are sure and steadfast. We're founded on Christ, the solid rock. Now, the confession here is not talking about our confession of faith, the Second London Baptist Confession that we, we love, that we embrace. We, we, we're thankful for that, and we, we do believe it, and we hold fast to that. But that's not what we're reading about here. What we're talking about here is the confession of what Christ has done for us. William Hendrickson says it this way. I like this. He says, the content of this confession is the expectation, first, that Christ will fill, fulfill all the promises he has made, And that all those who profess in the name of Christ possess these promises. He will fulfill all his promises. And if you are in Christ, you possess those promises. They're yours. Well, how can I be sure this hope is sure and steadfast? And the answer is, he who promised is faithful. God is faithful to every promise of his word the promises of the new covenant, that he will uh, give us a new heart, take away that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. He will make us his people. He will be our God and nothing will ever change that, that our, 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 our sins will be forgiven for all time. There's no condemnation. There's no accusation. And as we study the New Testament, we see in Christ many great and precious promises, Peter calls them. The promise that there is nothing and no one who can ever snatch us out of his hand. 
The promise there's nothing that can ever separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. The promise that God in his grace will work all things together for our good. The promise that he will provide the grace that you need for every trial and every challenge you face. Sometimes you don't feel that. You know, Paul, remember, he prayed three times, Lord, take away this thorn in my flesh. He pled with God, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul had not felt that power yet. That's why he was asking God to take it away. And God says, I will provide. The Father knows what we need before we even ask, Jesus tells us. And so we can ask freely from our Father because he knows and he's inclined to do good for us. And if we will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all that we need will be added to us. These are glorious promises. And there are many, many more great and precious promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. And hear me, God is faithful to his word. He keeps his promises. So brothers, sisters, you who profess the name of Jesus Christ, hold fast to this faith we profess. Hold, uh, let us believe the promises contained in this faith. Let us take God at his word and let us live confidently and securely. And I even say, let us live joyfully. We are given every, every reason to rejoice. And it says to hold fast without wavering. You know what, you know what it is to... to, to, to Hear the what-ifs of our enemy, right? Think about all those what-ifs Satan throws at you. What if God's promises are for other people, but they're not for me? It's kind of like David in Psalm 22. Surely God's good to Israel, but for me, I'm a worm and not a man. What if I'm missing out on something really great because the grass out there is greener than it is in here? You feel the seduction of the world. Or what if... My problems only get worse. Or what if the difficulties in my life never change? What if I don't have the endurance to make it to the end of this trial that is weighing so heavily upon me? What if Jesus simply lets go of me? What if he gives up on me and says, that's enough, I'm done. (laughs) You've just messed up too many times. What if I wasn't even really sincere when I asked him to save me in the first place? What if the sins that I commit really mean that I'm not even a Christian? What if, what if, what if? And the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. He sows lies and doubts. Now, the scriptures tell us, test yourself and make sure you're the faith, clearly. But we can unhealth, we can engage in an unhealthy navel-gazing that we can end up analyzing away any real faith. Your faith is not in your faith. It better not be in your faith because your faith is not strong enough to sustain it. But if we gaze upon the faithfulness of our God in Jesus Christ, our faith is not in ourselves or in our ability to trust. It's simply in God's faithfulness to his word. That word hope is the confident expectation that he will do what he said. It's not that doubtful, oh, I hope things work out the way I hope they will. I hope things will turn out okay, but I'm not really sure they will. That's wavering. Gospel hope says, I'm sure because he who promises faithful. I have this firm, this confident expectation that God is true to his word. And so we set our hearts on that truth. He who promised is faithful. We don't endlessly examine our own faith until it gets smaller and smaller and disappears. We instead we gaze on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We take him at his word. We trust that what he says is true. And it is true for you, his child. Now, holding fast to hope can be a battle sometimes. You know that battle? You know what it's like? Sometimes it seems like the, the opposition of the enemy, the trials are just too great, and you wonder if, you're, if, you're, if your grip is going to be able to, give, uh, to endure or if, if you're somehow going to slip and slip away. But remember, who is it that holds you? You can experience temptation that just, it seems overwhelming. You feel your weakness. You, you, you even may battle with unbelief, with wandering desires or even doubts. Or maybe discouragement sets in. Or even depression. 
And it feels like you read the Bible and it's just words on the page. You pray and the, 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 prayer, the, the words just bounce off the ceiling. And you wonder, does God even know that I'm here? Sometimes we struggle to experience the joy that we used to have. We, we, I had that joy, but, but I can't find it anymore. Your feelings fall flat. You feel spiritually dry as dust and you wonder, can I really hold on? And we read here, hold fast the confession without wavering. And yet you feel like, how can I do that? Well, here's the answer. You're not told to feel anything. He does not tell you feel joy. He says, hold fast to what you know is true, the confession of your hope. Cling to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, even when you cannot see it and you cannot feel it. A real Christian, a sincere Christian, truly with a new heart, truly belonging to Christ, can doubt. He can go through times of doubt about his own salvation. And so we must fight for hope by resting in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? Sounds like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? You fight by resting. Well, resting in Christ is not totally passive. It's focusing your mind and your gaze upon who he is and what he has promised. You rest from your own works. You rest in what he has done. Our our confession of faith, I, I, I would encourage you, go back and read portions of your confession from time to time. It's really good for your soul. It's not just a bunch of complex theology that you go, I don't understand all that. Particularly chapter 18 it's a chapter on the assurance of salvation or the assurance of grace. And there are four, four paragraphs, and they're gold. They're absolute gold. The first paragraph says basically every sincere Christian may enjoy the assurance of his salvation. It's our birthright. It's normal. Every sincere Christian may enjoy that. Second paragraph says essentially... But it's also possible that real Christians can go through a time where you experience a lack of assurance, and it gives many reasons. Sometimes it's neglect. Sometimes it's severe temptation. Sometimes it's God, for his own sovereign purposes, withdrawing a sense of his favorable presence and allowing us to struggle, making us walk by faith and not by sight or feelings. The third paragraph tells us it's our duty our responsibility to use the means of grace God has provided to make our calling and election sure, particularly in those times we don't feel assurance. And the fourth paragraph is so sweet. It says, whatever may come in all of this, in due time, God will restore that joy, that assurance. He will restore that sense of belonging to him. But in the meantime, he will sustain us from utter despair. And I, I will tell you, when I first, that first came home to me, I was in ministry. I was at a pastor's conference. And uh, a pastor named Joel Beakey was preaching on these four paragraphs. And it absolutely saved my heart, it seems like. I was at the point of utter despair. I was feeling so discouraged. And yet the Lord graciously used these truths. So I commend it to you. Hold fast to these truths. Hold fast to uh, that confidence that is our birthright in Jesus Christ. Hold fast to the hope that is an anchor for our souls. Well, the first exhortation, draw near to the Lord. Secondly, hold fast to that hope, that confession. Thirdly, let us engage in meaningful community with one another. Look at verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, these two verses really are a sermon in themselves, Right? But I think it's important to bring them to you in the context that we find in Hebrews chapter 10. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Literally, it's let us consider one another to the stirring up of love and good deeds or good works. A couple of things I want you to pay attention to. The first one is we need to get involved in each other's lives. The idea that I have my own private little Christian walk and, we, and we, we live this Christian individualism. It's one of the great curses of Western mentality. How many teenagers feel like, I really don't want mom and dad involved in this part of my life? I, I, that was true of me, by the way. After I became a Christian, I really didn't want 
to entrust my, my heart to my mother and my father. And my mother truly loved the Lord, and I think my, and my father certainly professed to. And yet there was something in me that didn't want that. Something in me that didn't want to really bear my soul to my sister who dearly loves Christ and who was a great encouragement once I finally did. Uh, but there was something he was using, the enemy was using to keep us apart because it's in community that we grow. And it's in community that we sense a greater reality that feeds that assurance of faith, as it were. And this word, stir one another up, it's, it's not a gentle suggestion. It's not whispering in someone's ear. You might ought to think about this. It's a very active word. It implies having a powerful impact on another person's life. It's inciting someone to take action of some sort, to encourage them, to challenge them, to motivate them, to cast a vision, as it were, to help them believe something that they didn't think possible. And you do that through setting a godly example, but it's more than that. It's through words. It's through relationship. It could be through mentoring. It's through getting involved, drawing near, not just to the Lord, but to one another. And we're to do that. We're to get involved in each other's lives, number one. But number two, we're to do it intentionally, not haphazardly. We're to consider one another, to stirring up of love and good deeds. Consider how you might get involved in the lives of your brothers and sister. How might God use you to make an impact on a fellow Christian? Maybe someone younger than you. Maybe someone quite a bit older than you. Have you ever thought, teenagers, that God can use you to be a great blessing to some of the gray hairs in our church? He really can. He really can. And we at our peril think, well, what, do I, what can I do? How, how significant can my impact be? And then we keep it to ourselves. Like that woman with a million dollars. She saw a lot of people out there who really could have benefited from her generosity if she'd chosen to be generous. When I was in college, freshman year, I was in a Bible study with three other guys who are still friends to this day. And there was a senior girl named Bonnie who approached me at our large fellowship group. We had a, a really wonderful ministry on campus. And she approached me one night and she said, Jamie, when I look at you and these other three guys, I have great confidence for the future of this ministry. Now, here I, I'm this tweaky little freshman, and here's this senior girl who's in the leadership of this group, of this ministry, telling me that, helping me believe something that I wouldn't dare to believe. And here I am, a lot of years later, and I still get a little bit choked up thinking about it. Because what she said made an impact far beyond what she ever would have imagined. And sometimes it's those, those little conversations you can have with someone just, just one or two sentences sometimes. Maybe it's a longer conversation, but sometimes it can be very brief that has years-long, decades-long impact. So as you pray for one another, as the Lord brings someone to your mind and, 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 and a need or, or, or an opportunity comes to your mind, consider how might I be used of the Lord to help spur that person on, to stir them up, to address that need or that opportunity. How might I bring words of encouragement or affirmation? God is using you in this way. You may not even realize it. Or casting a vision. God can use you in a way you never imagined, you never thought about. You know, I think this is something that you might be good at. Years ago, Brian Smith told me that Blaine White called him up on the phone and said, Brian, I need a team teacher in this, I'm not sure, elementary age class, fourth grade, something like that, kindergarten class. And Brian is like, I can't teach. I sure can't teach kids. And Blaine said, yeah, you can. Come on, let's do it. And what Brian discovered was not only can he teach, he loves to teach, and he has a gift to teach. But it was because Blaine, his brother, calls him up and casts that vision for him. Do you see how life-impacting Moving toward one another and stirring one another, one another up can be casting that vision. Now, he tells us here to consider how we might stir one another up. And then he says, not neglecting to meet together, because that's where we gather in order to stir one another up. 
The text doesn't say here, don't neglect meeting together, some of them are in the habit, but rather gather for worship. No, we're supposed to gather for worship, right? But that's not the only thing we do here. We also connect. We also stir each other up. We, we get involved in each other's lives. We, at home, we pray and we, we, we consider and we think about. But then when we gather, we do some stirring up before the service, after the service, in the hallways, down in the fellowship hall, during, uh, during our fellowship meal, at community group meetings. Those are so very important. Please don't neglect them at prayer meeting. Now, when this was written, in many cases, the only time they saw each other was when they gathered. We have the luxury of being able to communicate with each other in all manner of ways. We can hop in the car and go somewhere. We can text. We can call. We can email. We, any number of ways to connect. But nothing replaces face-to-face. Nothing takes the place of face-to-face. And that's where we have this impact. That word encourage means one called alongside. Not lobbing words of encouragement over the fence, but drawing alongside brothers or sisters. And that word encourage is a very, it's my favorite ministry word. It's a very flexible ministry word that basically means come alongside and meet the need of the moment. And it's used in many different ways in the New Testament. In Hebrews 3, we're told to encourage one another so that no one will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's a protection. Here we're told to encourage one another in order to stir one another up to love and good deeds. You remember Ephesians 2.10? It says, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that we should do them. And sometimes it's very easy not to really be paying attention to what are the good works God would have me to do. And it may be that timely word from a brother or sister, that phone call, that text from uh, the person who's organizing and recruiting for Sunday school or, uh, or a deacon saying, hey, we really need some help with this project or uh, one of the pastors saying, uh, I think uh, you would be useful to the church in this area of ministry. It may be those things you, you never would have imagined, never would have dreamed, maybe never dared to think about. Or maybe you long to, but you're not sure that anybody else would appreciate. And it's those words of encouragement, that stirring up, that emboldens us to say, here am I, Lord, send me. Sometimes we need that encouragement. We get focused in ourselves, and and we need somebody to to urge us on to love others, to serve, to not simply be consumers of the ministry of the church, but to be participants in the ministry of the church. And let me say this, the impact of a timely word, a timely gesture of love and encouragement cannot be overstated. Can you remember in your own experience someone pulling you aside and challenging you to try something that you might not have tried before? Or comforting you in a time when you're really hurting. And maybe even deeply discouraged. You needed comfort and and they came alongside and they did that. Encouraging you when you felt weak and discouraged. Or urging you to persevere when you're feeling like you might want to give up. Or someone showing you love when you're wondering, does anybody even care? Does anybody see me? That's why greeting one another with a holy kiss is so very important. Not that uh, that was a cultural greeting, but that greeting and that welcoming and that, that, that uh, a spiritual embrace, if not physical, is so very important. Helping you see blind spots that you might not be aware of in your own life. I love this phrase. We're called to be instruments of seeing because we all have spiritual blindness, Right? Those are various ways we can come alongside and encourage one another. We infuse new hope, new courage, new purpose, new determination, new trust in what God might yet do. Now, I want to emphasize here that the way that you cultivate a sincere sincere heart that draws near to God and, and the way you cultivate this unwavering hope and the confidence in the promises of Christ it's not simply done in isolation it happens in community it's seeing God not only at work in your own life but seeing God at work in the lives of others and sometimes when you're struggling to believe something it's all, 
I don't think it's overstating it to say, can you let a brother or sister help you believe? And believe, you may not believe this, but can you believe that I believe this? And help you find your way back to believing when your doubts seem too large. That's why you need others to stimulate you to love and good works. That's why they need you to stimulate, stimulate them to love and the good works. That's why we gather regularly and faithfully. That's why we make it a habit. And I want to encourage you here. Sunday morning's not enough. If you, somebody asked me recently, why do you only meet one, or why, why do you meet on Sunday morning and Sunday night? Why do you have two services? I think we need that. If you show up, you walk in, you sit down, you go through the worship service, you get up and you leave, and you don't really interact with anybody, and we don't see you again until next week, how are you encouraging anyone, and how is anyone encouraging you? How are you fulfilling what this passage is calling us to do and to be? So we need to come. I'm really thankful that when we come, the poor guys who lock up have to hang around a long time, because we don't leave very quickly, do we? We stay around and we visit and we talk. and we, Some people do leave pretty quickly. I wish you wouldn't. Because some really wonderful things can happen after the service. We, we visit with each other. We, we enjoy fellowship with one another. We tell stories. We catch up on what's going on in each other's lives. We follow up on concerns that we've been praying about. I've been praying about this. Tell me how things are going. We express love and concern to people who are struggling. Years ago, my wife was in a very, very deep depression. And there were many Sundays when the service ended, she just sat there weeping. And a number of you sisters would come and just sit by her, put your arm around her. Some would pray for her softly. Nobody tried to fix it. You can't fix it. But they came alongside and comforted and encouraged my dear wife. That's a wonderful way to minister grace, to encourage, to love and good deeds. But in that context, we, we, we express love and concern. We develop deeper bonds of fellowship and trust that are going to lead to more fruitful ministry. Sometimes we sit in the pew and we pray right there. Sometimes we talk about things that God is teaching us. Sometimes we ask questions. What did the preacher mean when he said this? Or even ask the preacher that question. And we talk about it. And we encourage one another to grow in our love. For the Lord Jesus Christ. We're stirring one another up to love and to good deeds. That rarely takes place by accident. It doesn't just happen. It's something we need to be very thoughtful about. We need to be deliberate. We need to consider one another. How we might stir each other up to love and to good deeds. I want to encourage you. Hang around. Join us for lunch today. Be deliberate in the things that you talk about. How you visit and encourage one another. Think about ahead of time, who sitting here today could use a word of encouragement? Maybe lifting their spirits and encouraging greater faith. Maybe it's casting a vision of what God might do. Maybe it's showing appreciation. I believe the Lord used you in a significant way, whether you, you may not recognize this, but God used you in a really amazing way. Uh, those are wonderful ways we can be used of God to make an impact on the lives of God's people. So who can you use? Who can you stir up? to love and good works. All of this, drawing near, holding fast, stirring up, uh, all of this is possible because of what we have in Jesus Christ. We have a new and living way to that throne of grace. We have a great high priest over the house of God, and that changes everything about how we live our lives if we will hold fast to that confession and do what God's told us to do. How do you relate to God? How do you, do you draw near and a sincere heart and full assurance of faith? How do you relate to your own heart? Do you hold fast to that confession? Because you know that he who promised is faithful. How do you relate to one another, stirring them up to love and to good works? Are you gathering regularly, faithfully? Are you purposing? Are you carving out time? Are you orienting your life around gathering with the saints that you might be used of God to build one another up in this most holy faith? Are you taking full advantage of the wonderful privileges that are ours in Jesus Christ? Our great high priest who has secured for us this new and living way. Remember that little old lady? Everybody thought she was so poor. Turns out she was wealthy, but she didn't live like it. She squandered the opportunities and benefits that wealth would have provided. 
And she lived an impoverished life and and enriched no one. How are you going to live? You going to stuff it all into the mattress? How are we going to do what God is calling us to here? Are you going to live like a spiritual pauper? Or are you going to live out the vast benefits that are yours in Jesus Christ? Let me just say a word. Some of you are hearing this and going, I don't know that that's real about me. I don't think I'm a Christian. I, I don't think God would want me to come before his throne. The invitation's there. <laughs> Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. When I was not a believer, I was 14, and I was, I, I, the Lord just really was convicting me of my sin. And I began to cry out and ask God to save me, and I felt like he was saying, no, it's too late for you. You've sinned away your day of grace. I don't know where that phrase came from. It's not true. And a friend said to me, Jamie, are you coming to Christ? He took me to John 6, 37. All who come to me, I'll never drive away. Are you coming to Christ? I said, I'm trying to. And she said, can Jesus lie? Hear me. He who promises faithful. If you will come to him, if you'll put your faith and trust in him, if you will repent of your sins and turn to him, he will receive you and he will embrace you and he will lavish these great blessings on you as well. By faith, not, not by anything you and I can do. Not anything we can do to clean ourselves up or make us worthy. Anything else, we don't need to. Jesus has done it all. Won't you, even today, run to Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Stir up in us greater faith, greater confidence, greater hope, greater conviction that you are faithful to your promises. And help us live that out by drawing near to you, by holding fast the confession of all that you've done for us and promised for us in Christ, and by stirring each other up to love and good deeds that we might build this body, that you might build this body to greater maturity, greater health, greater effectiveness for your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.